I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. Have you ever seen the faces in the crowd section in Sports Illustrated? We'll start keeping an eye on those faces because often those athletes go on to do amazing things. There have been athletes in there like Billie Jean King, Carl Lewis, Tiger Woods, Carrie Walsh Jennings, and today's guest. Rachel Adams burst onto the volleyball scene in high school and made a big impression in a very short amount of time. Just a couple of years into the sport, and she found herself already on the U.S. Girls Youth National Team that competed in the U18 World Championships. Shortly after that, she became one of those faces in the crowd. By her junior year of college, she was ranked number one in the NCAA statistics with her hitting percentage. Then she turned pro. She is a 2014 FIVB World Champion, a 2015 Pan Am Games Champion, and a 2016 Olympic bronze medalist in volleyball. In this episode, Rachel shares the ups and downs in her career, some crazy stories from living overseas while playing professionally, what it was like to earn that bronze medal in Rio, and how her journey towards Tokyo this summer is shaping up. But before we jump into the episode, I want to read you a five-star review we received on Apple iTunes from Likes Puzzle Strategy. It's titled Insight into Grit, and it reads, Laura does an incredible job of asking questions that go beyond the athlete's achievements alone. She helps us understand the struggles and victories they've all had and why they chose to keep going. Each athlete has a unique story and she does a masterful job of telling them all. Thank you so much for that review. My hope through this podcast is that you will not only be encouraged by our guests, but you'll also discover useful tools and resources as well as be challenged to keep pushing forward towards your goals. And the absolute best way that you can help support this podcast is to leave us these great reviews. Just subscribe to the Pursuit of Gold podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Give us a five-star rating and a raving review. Who knows? Maybe I'll read yours in the next episode. All right. I believe that there's gold in your future. So let's dive on in with Rachel Adams. Rachel Adams, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm so glad you are finally on here and we're getting to talk. Yes, thank you for having me. And it's been a long time coming. For sure. Um, Just for you guys listening, Rachel has been super patient and understanding of this crazy Texas winter storm that we had that made us reschedule. But we like, I know you were quite a few years behind me at, at University of Texas, but back in May of 2020 is when we did this Zoom roundtable. And that's the first time I've ever really heard you talk. I had seen your face and, and heard your name before, but I got to listen to you on there and you were just so encouraging. And um, I just love how consistently optimistic and thoughtful you are. I started stalking you on Instagram and I love how you're just working through things like how to be better at hydration and recovery. And you just share those things. And it's just nice for somebody with a similar mindset. You know, it just like re-energizes and encourages me to keep moving forward. So um, thank you for being a great social media person. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, why have the crazy journey if you aren't there to share and inspire others along the way, you know? I love it. Definitely. Well, okay. I love to get a little bit of background on our guests. So will you kind of walk us through how you found or started volleyball to begin with? I mean, like, was it always volleyball for you or did you start in other sports? Yeah. So it's been an interesting journey. So to start, my dad was a basketball player. He played in the NBA for a couple of years and then went overseas. And my mom was an avid tennis player. 
And so my dad tried to get me into basketball and golf and my mom tried to get me into tennis. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of tolerated it. You know, I went to practices. It was mostly to be like with my friends and do stuff together with them after school. And I had played volleyball in grade school, but it was just basic volleyball. Our team never won anything. And if you know anything about volleyball, you just do basic rotations. Like you become an outside hitter, the middle and then the setter. Got to learn it all, right? <laughs> exactly. And then my best friend was on a club team. She had like matching shoes and bags and all this cool stuff, travel stuff. And I was like, I want to be on the club team. So I joined the club team and my mom paid for me to join. And they were far more advanced than me. What once was like a typical rotation became, you know, everyone had specific positions they played in. So I didn't understand the rotations. I didn't you know, no simple lingo and stuff. And so the coach would put me in when there's like one point left in the game and kind of like have a chuckle and <laughs> kind of get a laugh out of it. You know, I didn't understand it. I went up, up to my mom. I was like, mom, I'm not having fun. She's like, okay, like, don't, I'm not going to push you to do it. And so, you know, it's money that she doesn't have to pay for, <laughs> right. you know, and she's like, okay. And so I quit. And then going into high school, I thought I was going to play basketball. And so I was doing summer camps, but one night I was spending the night at my best friend's house and she said, Hey, do you want to come in this morning with me to uh, the incoming freshman volleyball camp or just stay in? And I have no idea what made me go in because like I'm a sleeper, especially, you know, going into high school, like oh yeah, what teenager doesn't want to get some sleep, but I went in, I brought my summer reading book and I asked the coach like, Hey, it's okay if I sit over there and watch my friend practice. And he was like, sure. And so five minutes later, he asked me if I wanted to join and I did join. And I absolutely love the coaches and I learned so much in just that short day. And I immediately became addicted and I wanted to come back tomorrow. It wasn't like I was killing it. I was just learning and I became addicted to that learning process. Like, oh, can I get better tomorrow? And that my dad always told me to be a sponge. And that is kind of what I became. I wanted to learn everything and I wanted to perfect my craft. And I think that's what took me. I started so late in my career Why so many others on that high school team were playing since they were six on club teams for many years. I started so late, but I wanted to learn so much. But also at the other end of that, since I did start it, start so late, I felt like I did have to play catch up in so many different ways. And I felt like so many times I was telling my, myself the story that I'm not enough or they're so far more advanced than me. And that also left, left me with a lack of on the court for so many years. Like even like two years leading up to the national team, I always felt like, you know, everyone's so far advanced. Like even though I went to Texas and I was playing in Final Fours and I was being highly recruited, I just felt like I was just potential and I was never just like a great player. I was like, I still have so many things that I have to be able to do. So that's been kind of my journey. I went to Texas and I went to the 2016 Rio Olympics. And now I'm going for the 2020 or 2021 <laughs> Tokyo Olympics. So it's been a kind of a crazy long journey, but I've learned a lot about myself through so many ups and downs. Oh, yeah. Well, I, and I'm kind of curious, like going back to how 
you just picked up so much that first day and all of a sudden you just wanted to be that sponge, like your dad said, and, and learn and perfect it. Mm-hmm. Like, do you think it was just the age you were at? Like, wh- how come maybe you didn't feel that way before? Do you think it was the specific coaches or just maybe everything lined up, you know, at the right time? Like, what, what do you think that difference was there? Oh, for sure. The coaches that I had in high school, because I wanted to be a sponge then, but I was more laughed at than taught, you know, like, I wasn't guided, okay, like, this is what a free ball means. This is what a down ball means. This is where you need to be, and you need to work on this and that. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do that, you know? And still to this day, I have that mentality, and sometimes it it can turn into, like, perfectionism as, like, a double-edged sword. Like, I want to get better every single day, and I want to understand things very fast. But then I'm always very, like, critical. You know, I could have, like, 20 kills during a game and I remember the one error. So I just wanted to, yeah, learn as much as I can and improve, just get 1% better every single day. And I still believe that's what keeps me going into the gym at 30 years old, trying to play volleyball. Like I still feel like there's so much left to learn. I love that. So you were in high school, were you 15 maybe when you started 14, 15? Yeah. So 2004, so 14. And just a couple of years later, I mean, but 2007, I think I read you were already on the U.S. girls youth national team that competed at the world championships. Like, I mean, that's 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 like improving a lot from starting at zero. You know what I mean, that's like zero to 60 in a second. So, wow. I mean, as much as you kept feeling like you were just the potential and you didn't have what it took. I mean, like what was walking through that experience like? I mean, it from, I don't know, people immediately saw my raw capabilities. Um, and that's why the coach asked me to join. And he was just like, you were just an athlete. And, you know, when I did join a club team after that, a good club team, that means you're in front of college coaches. And I immediately started getting like letters in the mail. And, you know, you'd see just talks around like the volleyball world and, I think the first time I ever did anything with the Team USA, I think it was 2004, was like youth training before we did the World Junior Championships later there. But so many of my teammates had tried out for USA stuff and had never made it. So when I did, everyone was like, this is insane, you know? And I was like, oh my God, this is insane, you know? (laughs) So like, did you understand the gravity of it or not really? Oh, not at all, you know, because I was still under getting to know like what the volleyball world is about. So what they were aiming for for such a long time, I was like reaching in a, a short amount of time. So it just wasn't realized until, you know, little by little what I was doing. Mm-hmm. I totally get that. And I, I saw, too, that like I think that same year of that World Championships, you appeared in Sports Illustrated, like Faces in the Crowd. And I have to tell you, I love that because I ended up in Faces in the Crowd, too, after like I won my first nationals just a few years after I started. We have kind of a similar journey, I feel like. And um, it's cool because when you look back, so many people who have done these amazing things started by showing up in Faces of the Crowd. So I, lo- I love finding <laughs> other people who are in there. Yes. It's, I love seeing who's in there and, and trying to like, OK, maybe I'll remember these people. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they were really spot on. And I look back too. I'm like, whoa, like, yeah, I'm right there with you. And (laughs) just, I was reading about your journey too. And I was like, oh man, this is crazy similar. So hopefully we can touch on that later. But yeah. 
For sure. Well, okay. Before we jump into like your college career, I kind of want to go back to talking about your dad because you did mention your mom was an avid tennis player and your dad, you know, he played college ball, like basketball, and he was in the NBA. He played for the San Antonio Spurs, right? Correct. So as an athlete coming up, I mean, I know your parents like put you in sports and stuff, but did you ever feel like it was pressure or did it give you confidence or did you just feel like it had nothing to do with you? (laughs) Like was there, how did, I guess, how did it relate to you? Well, looking back, I didn't know it then, but I'm so thankful for how they treated my athletic experience. Um, Not once have they ever gone up to a single coach and asked, like, why I wasn't playing, why I'm not doing, why isn't Rachel doing this, why isn't Rachel starting? You know, because there were times, even in the USA, my early days where I wasn't a starter when I first joined the national team, and they never put pressure on me to do this like I did lessons because my friends were doing extra lessons like they never pushed me to do that so so much a part of my career was self-driven and they allowed me to do that and it I feel like when they give you that room to drive and lead your experience without the pressure so many I don't know for me I just held on to it and it was my thing like volleyball was something that I found and it wasn't like my parents like pushing me to find it or putting pressure on me, you know, after good games or bad games, like they're in total support and like listened and tried to support me along the way and just did everything in their capabilities to set me up for success, especially along the college recruitment experience and just, you know, being the the higher educated eye when going through all of that process. Mm-hmm. I think that's so cool. We talked to Michelle Carter um, you know, back in episode 21, and she kind of, her dad was really successful. He was uh, an Olympic medalist, and he was in the uh, NFL, a Super Bowl, same year. Like, I mean, he was really successful, but she said she didn't even know it because her dad didn't even tell her about those things. Like, she didn't even find out until she was, like, very <laughs> elite, which is kind of funny, but it, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's cool. Your parents took kind of a very similar, like, hands-off, letting it be your thing. And my parents were like that, too, although they weren't professional athletes or anything like that. Yeah. But, you know, I've seen the flip side, too, where I've seen parents that are so all-consuming that it just almost breaks the athlete, you know, where, where they had all this potential, but it becomes more about the parent than the athlete. So it's really interesting, I think, to and me as a, as a mom, I'm a, I'm a mom of four kids that are starting to get into sports and things. And I, can, I, I worry, you know, like, how am I supposed to be? I don't want to be too overbearing. I don't want to be too involved, but yet I'm interested. So... I love hearing stuff like that of like they just they were there for you and helped you navigate things, but let it be yours. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I'm so thankful for it. And they let me fail. They let me succeed and didn't try to sugarcoat everything. And yeah. So what was the recruiting process like? Because you were one of the top recruits coming out of high school. And for those high school athletes listening, I would love for you to kind of tell us maybe what some of the factors um, that you were looking at that you weighed when you were looking at which college to go to. Yeah, so I would say my recruitment process, when I hear about kind of how it is going about these days, I think from what I'm hearing, many athletes are committing very early on. And I committed late, and I even committed past the first late signing period. So I was one of the last, like, you're looking at top five recruits, I was the only one that wasn't committed. And I had taken my time. And uh, it wasn't in intentional. I just really was trying to figure it out. And my last four colleges were USC, Penn State, Texas, and Florida. And I think the biggest question that I asked 
asked myself during that process was, would I want to go to this college even if there is no volleyball? And many of the schools that I looked at, I was just like, no. Like maybe I didn't feel like I belong there or maybe it was small town and I just didn't see myself there. But when I looked at Austin and what the school had to offer and the majors that I was looking at, I was like, I would totally go here if there is no volleyball and feel completely at home and, and well, because, you know, the athletic isn't guaranteed, like maybe something happens or, you know, you never know, but I really, I like making pros and cons lists. So I literally like take out a piece of paper and write down all the colleges and do like pro and con, like USC, like far away from home, but in the city or, and I just look at it after that's all done and just like, what stands out to me? Like, what are my focuses? Like, do I want to be close to home? Is that important? Or did it have my major? And it just allowed me to like break things down visually because I'm a like a visual person. And so, yeah, just I would break it down in the pros and cons and just get really clear on what your focus is and what you want. So if you're able to look at if their start is in a program, will you play? Will you not? Are the coaches good? What do the players come out after that college experience do? Do they go to the Olympics? Do they quit? Do they keep playing professionally? Like, so, you know, if they go to the Olympics, like, and you want to go to Olympics, maybe you go somewhere that is making like Olympians, you know, not making them, but it's not guaranteed, but kind of knows the path. So, I mean, that's kind of what I looked at. That's really good info. And and obviously you chose very wisely since you chose <laughs> yes. University of Texas. So hook up. <laughs> hook up. Yeah. If you guys weren't aware, that's where I went to school too. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So I was reading a little bit about your college and I mean, you were always really highly ranked in the stats, it seemed like, on the team. And I mean, by your junior year, you were ranked number one in the whole NCAA statistics with your hitting percentage. That's amazing. But I mean, stats only tell us, you know, such a small part of the story. Like, what was your collegiate experience actually like? Like, was it hard to, I guess, go with a whole new team of people? Because for me, I'm an individual athlete. So I don't know what going to team to team. I mean, it's different people I'm with, but I'm not like necessarily dependent or they're not dependent on me. So, you know, is that was that a big change or did you kind of blend right in? I would say, you know, from my freshman to senior year, as I was as an athlete, everything changed and my roles changed and my knowledge of how to be a better teammate and player changed. But I would say if you look at the stats, you know, I was a solid middle blocker, like all American, but I still, you know, I wouldn't say like, oh, like MVP or if someone would have, you know, thought as I was graduating, like, oh, she's going to go to the Olympics. Like I wasn't one of the highly toted athletes to like go on and like be an Olympian or go on and do really amazing things. And that kind of how, how it was in college. I felt like I was always at the top, but maybe I didn't get that end of the year, like MVP or like most valuable player. So like there was always something that kept me hungry inside. Like I was just missing like complete, I don't know if you want to call it validation, but the complete, like this is a complete player. And so that always kept me hungry. And I'm, that's why I am currently still hungry for more because I feel like there's still so much more that I want to share and do and show like be a better teammate be a better leader and things like that but in college uh I would say my coach would ask me a lot of times like are you out to lunch or like are you here today and so 
sometimes I just wouldn't have my focus there. So I just grew a lot as a player, as a person. So it's been like a journey, but um, (laughs) just being able to hone in who I am along my college experience each year to reach like, I don't know, I'm kind of mumbling on, but yeah, I hope you get a little gist of that. I do for sure. And I, I guess I confused too, because um, how does like when you started making the U.S. national team, you know, how does that kind of coincide with college or whatever else you're doing? Is that uh, did you start making the national team during college or was that after? So our my class, the 2008 graduating class, like, OK, so my 2012 college graduating class, it landed on the year of the Olympics. So the year before the Olympics, nobody was or the coaches were not like inviting players in to like join the, the the squad and compete or just get experience where um classes before me were able to go in during like spring training um and join the national team and go to tournaments and many young players are able to do that now in our gym but so I was never on the USA women's like top training team until I graduated from college and played a a professional season overseas. Mm -hmm. So it's definitely not, I think, comparable to like swimming and diving where I think you can, I mean, you can compete at the Olympics when you're in college, but you don't see that often. You see more, more experienced players, more older players, more seasoned players making Olympic squads than like younger players. That's really, that's really interesting. I love hearing the differences between the sports. So do you have to actively try out or are they just like kind of evaluating you and you put your name in the hat and they start looking at you? How does that work? Yeah. So obviously, you know, as you go through your college career, like you're known and people see you and you can get invited. But since I was at a beginning, a beginning of a quad and there was a new coach, which is our current coach now, there wasn't a clear pathway. There was no, there was a tryout, but it wasn't as clear as it kind of is now. And I had to email one of my connections to the USA and I was like, Hey, like, how do you get invited to train in the gym? He's like, Oh, there's going to be a new coach. I'll send you his email. And the coach happened to do like some of our uh, announcing, you know, NCAA matches. So he has watched us and he's like, yeah, I know of you and I was going to invite you. So it starts with an invite, and then if they want to completely invite you as a member of the USA national team, then you um, become an official member. And then every summer there's tournaments, and then you have to make those rosters to travel. And so just because you make the first roster or just because you make seven rosters doesn't mean you're going to make the final roster for the Olympic team. So you literally don't know if you're going to be on the Olympic team until, like, a few weeks before the Olympics and the coaches decide 12 players. And so it's not like maybe, you know, swimming, diving track where you qualify yourself, like everything is out of your control. All you can do is like be your best, show up, put your best skills in front, be a good teammate and hope that what the body of work that you're building is what the coaches want for the team. 
Wow. That is so crazy to me. Like, I, oh, I don't know if I could handle that. <laughs> I know. It's I mean, not just like, yeah, you go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, like, we, we think we have this illusion of control, even when you like, OK, I get top two, I make it like. But, you know, it's still there's so many things that can be out of your control. But to like actively know you're not in control, <laughs> it's just stressing me out thinking about it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So uh, what was that process like then? Because you made the 2016 team, but you had already started travel at like you were playing professionally over in Europe. I- I'm I'm going to ask you so many questions all the time. I'm, tr- I'm trying to pace myself. <laughs> but I guess how did that work going into 2016? Like, did you literally find out like two weeks before the Olympic Games? Yeah. So every player's journey is so different. So mine, I was traveling um, in 2013, 2014. And 2015, I had um, eye surgery. So I had like, I have like really bad vision or like um, my prescription's really strong. So I can easily like, I guess, detach my retinas and they oh, have wow. to just like, um, it was like a that day surgery. They're like, hey, your retinas need to have surgery. And they came in with like a laser and just like did a circle in them anyways. Had surgery, had to be out for a few weeks. Um, and I didn't travel at all that summer. and. If you would have, even besides the eye surgery, if you would have asked anyone in 2015 if I would have been a part of the 2016, like, final roster, they probably would have said no, just because I wasn't starting. I wasn't making all the travel rosters. But after that, like, kind of turbulent summer, I just did a lot of self-work, and I came back, and I just kept focus and I ended up making that last roster and showed my consistency and I kept that consistency all the way through the Olympics and uh you know what's crazy is like you could make like every single roster up to that and find out you're not making the last roster so like you said it's so much out of your control and it's like so so how many people are kind of on the roster getting close to it and then how many are like cut right there at the end so right now, uh, we still do not know our final roster for 2020. And so in about April, end of April, all the girls will come back from their professional team, teams overseas. And it's about 24 of us. And we will be in the USA gym. And it's going to be very unique because of the pandemic. But normally we have enough time to make selections. But there is a tournament that rubs up between the return of all the athletes and the Olympics and basically the athletes that go to this tournament, which is going to be in a bubble and it's about seven weeks long. That's going to be kind of the athletes that are chosen for, you know, from, I think maybe let's say 18 are going to be able to travel to that. I'm not very sure. They still haven't announced that yet, but only 12 of those can go. So just to make that first bubble after we haven't been training together for almost two years. So to not knowing what someone's body of work is, you know, after two years being in the gym, maybe having the coaches having like a week to decide who's going to that bubble. And then from that bubble, after seven weeks, choosing 12 athletes um, for the Olympics, it's just like, this is going to like, normally the Olympics are, you know, that lead up is stressful, but this is even more unique. Uh, for sure. I, I, I Wow, I can't like wrap my head around that. I mean, how I guess how do you keep your mindset together going into that? Because and this has been something and we'll get back to pie again. I'm like jumping all over my questions because I'm so excited. <laughs> no, but um, <laughs> I, I guess how do you keep your mindset 
steady and confident going into such kind of a crazy unknown situation? Yeah, so my situation, it's already a unique year for our team, but it's be even more unique for me just because I'm coming off of an injury. And so I'm training individually with the coaches right now, but they, you know, they are still going to have question marks. Like, can she compete for three days in a row? Can she do a whole tournament? So when the team does return, every single practice is going to be important for me to build that story for my coaches, because, um, you know, as a coach, they have to be able to bring a healthy squad And I have to be able to answer those questions for them. Like, can she travel? Can she hold this load? Can she do this and do what we need to have her um, be done? So for me, obviously, I could be panicking. I could be like, oh, my God, what are they thinking? But I'm literally just focusing on like one day at a time, one um, rep at a time, one accomplishment at a time, one practice. And just building little things from there, because if you start to think about the big picture or the what ifs, what are the coaches thinking? What are they going to choose? How are they thinking about these other players? That's where you start to lean on things that are all out of your control. And that's where you, you begin to be ungrounded in the whole situation. So for me to hold on to things that are in my control, like for me, that's why I'm talking about um, hydration, nutrition, like and recovery, like those are things that I can control. So like I'm practicing and then I'm recovering so I can show up again tomorrow. So that's something that's in my control and what I can do during this like insane time. Yeah, no, that's really good. I mean, how is the, I mean, besides kind of this crazy last lead up with the bubble and everything, qualifying, like how has the, the pandemic and the postponement of the Olympics affected you directly? For me, you could say like it's been great and it's not been great. It's been great in the sense like I did have surgery in 2019. So it gave me an extra year to fully get my legs and everything under me. But it also kind of derailed me a bit just because I was kind of ramping up in a good place and then everything got shut down. And, you know, I think my knee got a little underworked. And so when I did start working, it was like, what are we doing? And just like swelled up more. And it just like kind of derailed my just connection with my teammates. Like I haven't played with so many girls, like I said, like in two years, one and a half years. So I would say that's like the major part that kind of like derailed me is just with like my post-surgery stuff. Yeah, for sure. Well, take me back to like when you you graduated from UT and then the next year you started playing professionally in Europe. Like that's sometimes a really hard transition going from like, I mean, even even high school to college, like, oh, it's fun. Now I'm kind of getting paid to do it. Like it's a kind of a different, some, some people have a really hard time wrapping their head around that. Like, was it hard for you or are you just kind of like, sweet, more volleyball? <laughs> so the volleyball playing professionally is so unknown and they didn't have like real social media after that. So you would hear of like former players going to Italy, going to Russia, and you never knew like what that really looked like or what that really was. And so honestly, when I was graduating, I majored in advertising. So when I was graduating, I was making my portfolio to go to New York and just join an agency. I didn't know what it looked like to become a professional athlete or how to even get there. Mm -hmm. Because during the NCAA, you can't talk to agents and agents can't reach out to you. So I had no idea how to even do that until um, I got invited to be like a practice player 
or like um, there was a coach's clinic um, in Colorado for, for USA Volleyball. And so I was just a demo player. And I went there and I saw one of the USA stats guys at the time. And I was like, hey, like, how do you become, like, how do you get to play overseas? And he like explained it to me and he's like, hey, this is an email of a, an American agent. And so I reached out and maybe like a month later, I had I had an offer to go play in Poland. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so I went to Poland and I kind of, I had no idea what to expect. And my friends would always ask me like, where are you going to play? And I had to pull it up on my phone because <laughs> the city was called Bidgosh, but it's spelled like B-Y-D-C-Z-C-Z, like, you know, something insane. And I couldn't say that at the time. And, you know, I started a blog called Living in a City That I Can't Pronounce. And it like <laughs> became like an absolute hit in Poland. It was like in the newspaper. It's not there now. That's awesome. But I just like talked about my experience because I was just like, this is insane. But just my mindset, I had no idea what to expect. My agent had told me, like, this is the last team in the league. And if you join this team, I know it, they're not very good, but you can just work your way up. And so I was like, okay, challenge accepted. <laughs> and so I did, and I played well. My coach had, didn't speak a lick of English, and so I learned a lot of Polish. And just imagine, like, a coach running a drill in a different language. I felt like an absolute, like, failure. You know, I had no idea where to go, where to be, what we were doing. Like, I just felt like an absolute idiot. Oh, like, wow. And so you're definitely humbled quickly because also in Europe, they just been playing professional volleyball for a long time. So just simple skills. I don't know. For example, in the USA, middle blockers, which is my position, they aren't required to serve in the NCAA. But overseas, they have to serve. So you know, it was a new experience for me. And also everyone, even the youngest European volleyball players are very proficient in all their skills and, and many USA players just aren't. And so I was definitely humbled and I learned a lot, but it's definitely a humbling experience and um, you're never prepared for it. And even when I see young college players that are at the top of their class leaving and join the, either the national team or playing overseas, you can see how they're just like, what in the world is this? The game is faster, The you know, it's moving, you know, at a faster speed and you think you know everything, but you don't. And you're just very humble. Wow. So, man, I can't I can't imagine the language barrier and I'm sure the cultural barriers, too. Like, I, I guess. what was? Oh, like, I have stories. OK, tell me some stories. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Like, for example, um, my second year in Poland, my team, you get in your contract. So in your contract, you can negotiate everything from having tickets to go, return in, um, you know, to fly to Poland and then some for your family members to fly and then also to get a car in your contract and your apartment and all the bills paid. So even that and just knowing what to ask for is already just like, what is this? Because in NCAA, everything is standard. You're going to get a scholarship. Everyone's going to get like a meal plan. It is what it is. But in overseas, like you have to ask for what you want and you have to advocate for yourself. So that year I got a car and it was a manual. And I was like, uh, I can't drive a manual. Oh, no. And they were like, well, you can walk. And if you know Poland, it snows. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I was like, absolutely not. And so my Croatian teammate took me on the road and 
taught me how to drive a manual. And one day I was practicing in the parking lot by myself. And I was just like making circles, trying to figure out how to stop and the clutch and all that stuff. And I just like went up this ramp and then all of a sudden the ramp was a one way onto the main road. Oh my goodness. And I was like, oh no. (laughs) So I was driving and I get to like a red light, which is like your worst nightmare as a manual driver because you're not very good at the clutch. Like it's either you stall, you stall, you stall, and people are behind you honking and I'm trying to start the car. And so stressful. I, I know. And I finally <laughs> start the car and I just like like rattle my way to the gas station. I couldn't change gears and I, I get there and I get to like um, a gas pump and, you know, one of the people sees me and like the one of the gas guys, I end up going inside and like I called my team manager to talk to him to tell him like what my situation was. And the gas man got in my car and drove it back with me to the gym. Oh my goodness! It was just yeah, <laughs> like just like countless stories like that. I mean, because you know, as a tourist, if you go to a foreign country, you're just going to all of the touristy things. But when you're living in their foreign countries, you're in their grocery stores, you're in, you're taking money out of their bank and you have to either know the language or like Google translate and try to figure it out. And things that you take for granted, you know, when you're checking out um, in a USA grocery store and they're like, do you have your Kroger's card? And you're like, oh no, I don't have one. But you know, when you're in a foreign country at the first time, those basic things, and they just come at you with like a boo-boo, you're like, um, I I don't I don't know what you're saying, you know, and so it's not just simply like checking out, but it's just like so many instances where you're just like, I have no idea what's happening. Like, can I just have my food and can I go like just simple activities that you can just be like mindless, like you can't be mindless in a foreign country. It's just like, yeah, a lot of work. Are you pretty extroverted? Like, was this as hard as I'm sure it was still? Was it easy for you to get acclimated? Like, I just feel like I'd be so stressed all the time. I don't know if I could get used to it. (laughs) Well, there's like some days. So there, thank God, at so many of the grocery stores, there was self-checkout. Nice. And so I did not have to, like, interact with anyone or have any, like, messed up conversations. And I could just, like self-checkout and figure out this and that and just going about my business. But if there was no (laughs) self-checkout, you're definitely activated and you choose your activities wisely. Yeah, well, well put. Well, I mean, I guess apparently it wasn't too bad because you kept playing for other countries too. Like you went to Italy and then Turkey, then back to Italy, then back to Turkey. So I, I guess what, which of the countries was your favorite to play in or has been your favorite to play in? I would say Turkey. So Istanbul, Turkey was the biggest surprise. You know, I don't think many Americans have an idea kind of like what Muslim countries are like or what they look like. They have like maybe their judgments, but Istanbul, Turkey was the most westernized country out of all the countries I played in. And I felt so at home and it's absolutely beautiful because in Italy, I love Italy, but it's all about culture. It's all about history and older buildings and you know they definitely have a different open on monday for groceries or oh sundays we don't work or oh we don't work from 12 to 4 like we take breaks and oh sorry the kitchen is closed like oh we eat at seven o'clock at night you know like right. just little things like that in america where you're like 
I just want to go grab a lunch at Whole Foods and eat because I want to. Not going to happen in Italy. They're like, sorry, we're taking a break. But in, you know, Turkey, they operate how we work. Like everything's open, tons of like cute little brunch spots, very westernized. You have like your malls that, you know, you know, all the brands and all the stores. And yeah, yeah, I just feel very at home as the per- when you're living out of the country for seven to eight months out of the year. Mm-hmm. Well, I've heard Turkey is beautiful, but I've never been there. So it's really interesting to to hear about that. So you have been, you said after your surgery, you went back and played and then how, how did things pan out? So you went, you went back to Turkey, but then the pandemic, like how did it all break down for you? Yeah. So I had surgery in 2019 and the Olympics were obviously the next year in like July, 2020. And so after my surgery in 2019, 2020, March, everything shut down and I was just about to get on the court and try to come back full time after, you know, doing individual stuff and workouts. Um, It was time to just like let everything release and we got shut down. Mm. And so I was still able to work out, but I just wasn't getting any volleyball in. And so I managed to scrounge up a contract. It was very hard to find a contract because after I had surgery and there was no national team, nobody really saw me and everybody's like, is she healthy? Is she not? I don't know. We don't want her. And so I found a contract with a good situation and uh, June, June, July, and it just wasn't enough time because after the pandemic, after coming out of quarantine, my knee just randomly swole up again, like kind of got swollen again and we couldn't get it down. And then now you have me going into an unknown situation with a swollen knee and my USA trainers are like, I don't know, like maybe you should stay back. Maybe you don't go. And I was like, no, I really want to play. Like I haven't played. I have to show myself. And I played well, but my knee just, the swelling just never went down. And we were playing a rigorous schedule like every three days. And there was a point where I was just like, you know, my health is the most important Mm -hmm. and I carry on like this for another five months. And so I went back to California with the national team to get just my health under control. And of course it was like the hardest situation to like leave my team. And, you know, of course it leaves more question marks on my health for, you know, future contracts and future situations. So it's kind of in this point in my career where I just haven't been out in the spotlight for a very long time and you know how it can be like the lonely grind like that's what I'm in right now I feel you yeah you know about it and but that's where a lot of my like inner trust comes in and like my determination and just like I'm going to do everything that I can and I believe what's meant for me is like I don't know I've always had this like inner trust and inner like determination that just kind of leads the way through these difficult times. And I keep the positivity and I love quotes and encouraging words. So just like seeing those and kind of like, I screenshot it like, okay, that was for me. And, you know, I just keep me going. And that's why I do share so much of that just in case someone else needs it. But like, that's what gets me going through like that lonely grind. Like I'm the only one in the USA weight room right now, like compared to like 24 other girls are usually there training and I see everyone, you know, training and competing. And I'm just like, okay, just keep towards the process, keep chipping away, like one day at a time. Like, 
So that's where I am right now. So it is March. And so in May will be the tournament and April people will start returning. So it's that like, okay, that focus time. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I totally feel you on so many levels. (laughs) So what is your, I want to know what your definition of success is at this point in your career. That's a good question. I know it's loaded. I know. (laughs) I would say, I don't know. For me, you have and like leaving, like being at peace with what you have done and what you put out there and like how you are as a teammate, a player and like that process that you're able to show up every day and be proud of that and be okay with that and just have that peace, you know? But then again, there's that other side where like, I want to succeed. I want to get those accolades. I want to win the gold with my team. But then you're like, okay, well, what if you don't make it? Are you still a success? And, you know, that's why I guess your image of success has to be, for me, it's like, you know, am I at peace with what I'm doing and who I am and how I leave this place and path? Mm, I love that. Love it. Well, you have won Olympic bronze, world championship gold, Pan American gold. Do you have a most memorable tournament or experience, good or bad? So this is another thing that maybe you can't relate to as like uh, a diver. But so in volleyball, since it's like tournament format, when you're in the quarterfinals with four teams, like the team that doesn't win that match has Like they don't just automatically get third, you know, in track, if you're racing, it's like first, second, third, boom, you're done. In volleyball, that day, your dream is crushed of not going to the final and being able to compete or win that gold. And you have to wake up that next day and compete for third place. And you want to have a pity party. You don't want to like compete. You want to stalk. You want to like, your dream is over after four years of trying to reach that gold. And my teammates and I, we had to sit around and be like, okay, what are we going to decide to do? Like, we're going to have a pity party. Are we going to show up? And we didn't really have an answer until that bronze medal match where it was like in the middle of the game and we were kind of down. And I remember a moment I was like, you know what? I'd rather walk home with a medal than not. Like, why are we pitying ourselves? This is still an Olympic medal. And something in me turned on and it turned on in us. And, you know, we still had to earn that medal. It just wasn't given. So being able to like decide to earn that medal with my teammates is something I won't forget, but also like, you know, just a gut wrenching process at the same time to earn it. Yeah, I I was like you said, as a, as an individual athlete, I, I don't quite have that same experience. And I remember talking to a water polo player that I knew really well, Brenda Villa, and she had, they had won gold, they had won silver, they had won bronze, they'd won every, every color medal at the Olympics. And she said that winning the bronze was more special to her and felt more accomplished than the silver because they felt like they lost the gold, not won the silver, where they felt like they won the bronze. You know, so I was like, wow, that would just like blew my mind because I've never had that experience. And, and just the concept of like what those different medals mean when it's a tournament format like that, like that's, wow, that's just really, that's a lot that I had never heard before. It's really, that's cool. Yeah, it's really crazy. De- definitely different. Yeah. Well, you have a website called journeystrength.com too. What's that all about? Yeah. So Journey Strength um, started, I started it like two, a year before the Olympics. 
And like I told you, I love like encouraging words and quotes and I just screenshot them and keep them to remind me during my journey. And I was just taking, I just had so many and I was like, you know what? I also want to inspire others. And I'm also that friend. If someone comes to me and I was like, you know what? I don't believe in myself. I'm like, what? Like, (laughs) I'm going to give you a pep talk and you're going to believe in yourself by the end of this conversation. Like you do not give up and like you keep going, like you can do this, you know? And so I wanted to share those quotes and it started out just with like Instagram and sharing um, encouraging words. And I did at the time have like products like water bottles because I wanted people to have be able to carry these words on their journey mm-hmm. to see during tough times. But as you know, living in different countries and keeping inventory and track of everything was very difficult. So I had to like put a pause on that. But journey strength is just in the sense of being able to share words and reminders for people to see and read on their journey and just give them content and things for them to intake during those difficult times or times they don't believe in in themselves or want to give up or think that they're not enough to attain their goals. And because, you know, obviously there are so many times during our journeys, you know, where we've realized that and how important like those words kind of keep us going. So I just wanted to be that voice for other people during their journeys. Well, that's cool. And it sounds like it because I remember at the beginning when you were telling us about how you kind of felt like you were never that complete athlete, but you always felt like you were the one with the potential, but like never getting there. And so I love that it, it kind of feels like a little bit of your mission is to make sure other people know that they're more than they might think they are. And I think that's really cool and hopefully encourages you in the process while you're encouraging all of us. <laughs> oh, 100%. Like people think I'm just posting these, but I was like, oh, I need a that today, that today too. <laughs> right. I know. I feel like half the stuff I post is because I need to hear it too. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> funny. Well, where, where else can we follow you and support you and cheer you on this year online? Yeah, I would say the main places I'm going to be is my personal Instagram at Rachel Adams and then my other Instagram for Journey Strength at Journey Strength. So that's where you will find my me and my journey during this journey. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to link to it in the show notes. And you guys, you definitely need to follow her on Instagram because she's super encouraging. Every time I see her, her stories always makes me smile and makes me just be like, yeah, she's right. I love it. (laughs) So (laughs) Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today, for encouraging us in our own journeys. And we really do wish you all the best um, coming up and going for Tokyo. Yes. Thank you, Laura. And thank you everyone for listening. Bye guys. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.